Um, if you were around last week, you might remember that we talked about the importance of names. We said that names in the Bible meant things. For us, they're just a tag that we assign to people. Uh, and yet, in the Bible, they mean things. So, think of the name Smith, the most common surname in America uh, and in England. It comes from um, the profession of blacksmith, a smithy. And so, what, became, what started as an occupational name became a surname. And it tells us something about what that person does. But what if you don't know what that actually means, though? What if you've never come across a blacksmith before? Uh, and you don't know what they do. You don't know that it's about heating metal in a fire and moulding and shaping it to make things, to make horseshoes or axes or weapons or whatever it might be. What if you don't know what a smith is? Then you're none the wiser as to who they are. And last time, God said, I am the Lord. I am who I am. You want a name for me? I am is my name. I will be who I will be. I am real and I exist and you can count on me. You can trust me. You want to know who I'm like, what I'm like? Keep watching. Look and see what I will do and you will know the kind of God that I am. Keep watching as I work in history. And that's what we get in chapters 5 to 11 this morning. Seven chapters. We find out who the Lord is. We find out what I am means. And the way we're going to do it, as Johnny read for us, is looking at chapters, uh, chapter 7, verse 1 to 13, which I think seem to act as a kind of prologue to the entire section. They introduce the sort of key themes for us, and we'll use that vantage point then to try and understand what's going on in all seven chapters. Two ideas, just to hang at the talk from this morning. Can I move back a bit? I can hear me sort of reverbing slightly. Is that... Can people hear that? Or is that just me? There's some nods. I'll move back slightly. Two ideas to hang our thoughts from. The Lord is victorious, but not unchallenged by his enemies. And the Lord is visible, but not worshipped by all. So... The Lord victorious, but not unchallenged by his enemies. That is, this is not a clash of two earthly kingdoms. This is not two diplomats having a go at each other. This is a clash of Pharaoh and the supernatural powers behind him and the Lord, Yahweh, I am. You see that especially in our verses, in verses 8 to 10, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw down his staff in front of Pharaoh and his officials and it became a snake. Now a snake is not random. That wasn't just the... uh, the animal that the Lord picks for it to turn into. The snake is the symbol of Egyptian power. You look on Pharaoh's headdress, Pharaoh the most important, powerful man in the world, and you'll find a snake. Someone said, whoever bears the cobra, bears the scepter. And Moses takes his staff, and he throws it down, and it becomes a snake. 
And so the Lord says, I have the power. I am the boss. And yet he's challenged, verse 11. Pharaoh picks up the gauntlet. He then summoned wise men and sorcerers. And the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. God says, I am the boss. And Pharaoh says, really? Look what my mates can do. That they replicate the signs. God is challenged and yet we do see where the balance of power lies, don't we? Aaron's staff snake eats their staff snakes. It might not have looked like it a couple of weeks ago, but actually this powerful, passionate, personal God is coming to rescue his people and he's flexing his muscles and he's making it clear who is in charge, who is the boss. But you know, actually, I'm convinced there's more going on here than just that as well. We said it's not just a clash of civilizations, but it's more than that. The word for snake here, I'm told, is, is a very unusual one. It's not your usual word for snake. It's not standard. It's a word that in the Bible, again and again and again, comes to epitomise post-Genesis 3 forces of chaos and evil. Those forces of evil that God overcomes to create an ordered and purposeful kingdom. He's, he's remoulding, he's reshaping a broken world. He's putting it back together again, bringing order out of chaos again. And so we see in these chapters in Egypt, I take it not just the kingdom of Egypt is going to be defeated, but we see he's going to deal with the kingdom of darkness. We see who the Lord is. And so its final fate is actually seen as this staff snake eats the other staff snakes. You see who's in charge. And you see its fate as well, step by step by step, as you go through each of the plagues. When God's authority is stamped again and again and again, I am the boss, I am victorious, I'm in charge. Maybe you were here last week and you were observant, you were awake and you said, ah, chapter 4, verse 22 to 23 though, didn't the Lord say this? Israel is my firstborn son and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go so I will kill your firstborn son, says the Lord to Pharaoh, before it's even started. That is, the Passover is going to happen. We are going to get to the end of it. So why bother with ten plagues then? If we know that's the end game, why go through plague one, plague two, plague three, plague four, right the way through to plague ten? We already know it's going to end up there. They aren't going to persuade Pharaoh. So why bother? Good question, you. Well, I say just as the snake was not random... So these plagues are not random. They're very deliberate. The snake wasn't a random object or a random animal to turn into and the plagues are not random plagues. Each plague is targeted, is focused on a particular aspect of creation that the Egyptians believe their gods ruled over or indeed an Egyptian god in itself. And the Lord dispatches these ten gods 
one by one by one by one. So, plague one, the Nile god, I think called Hapi, he's left defeated. Plague two, the goddess Heket, who's represented by a little frog symbol. She's defeated. Right way through plague nine, perhaps more well known, that the sun god Ra, almost the king of their gods, and the Lord comes and flicks the switch. And it's dark. No street lights, no torches, no bulbs in the house, just darkness. The Lord is God. Ra is nothing when he stands next to the true God, the covenant God of the people, the one who made the light and the Nile and the frogs and right the way through. This is the Lord saying, I am here and I am at work and I am the boss. And then you finish up. We'll see more next week. The tenth plague on Pharaoh. Pharaoh who was worshipped as a god, the god Horus. The Lord is victorious. He's not unchallenged by his enemies, but he's victorious. And so it is today, I think we must go from here amazed by the power of the Lord. Nothing can thwart him from rescuing his people. Nothing can get in his way. Nothing can stop him. No no so-called gods can compare with who he is and the power that he has. Even those gods that come to us and promise us so much and they say, I'll rescue you. I'll bring you out of that situation. I'll make you feel better, whether it be success or power or money or popularity or whatever it might be. Those gods that promise to rescue us. Their power is nothing. They're not going to help. We think they'll provide. We're told they'll provide. They never do. Madonna is a fascinating and interesting individual. And she says this. She says, I have an iron will. And all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being and then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre and that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. It's fascinating, isn't it? This God of being a success, of not being mediocre, of not being inadequate. And she thinks that will rescue her. And she keeps trying to find a new God who's going to rescue her and show that she's okay. Let me say, if you're a student here at Oxford, I'm sure some of you are, uh, there is a God that will shout out to you And it's the God of success. And they will come and say, come and bow down at our altar. This will bring you rescue if you get a good degree. But you know, the true God is God. He is the Lord. Bow to him. He has real power. If you oppose him, it is a monumentally foolish thing to do. One book I was reading on this put it very starkly and very challengingly said this, when a Cambodian dictator slaughters people made in his image, the Lord won't stand for it. 
When Richard Dawkins writes a book arrogantly dismissing God as a delusion, the Lord won't stand for it. When your nicest friend, loved by everybody and planning a career helping AIDS orphans, decides that Jesus isn't really for her, the Lord won't stand for it. The plagues are God's megaphone. I am the Lord. Look what happens if you oppose me. He is opposed in these chapters. He is challenged. The magicians are able. They have an ugly, destructive, false power. They turn staffs into snakes and water into blood and they can make a few frogs. But then they can't keep up. Fast forward. And you get a very interesting little encounter going on in the Gospels in Jesus, the life of Jesus. We see another rescue for the people of God. He's opposed, he's challenged by the Pharisees. They know their Old Testaments and they say, where is this power coming from? How are you doing this stuff? Jesus says, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, who, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Satan is at work. There is a battle. There is opposition. I take it it was Satan who was behind the power of Pharaoh and the forces of Egypt. But he's been defeated and he's been vanquished. And yet until the kingdom is finally consummated, until Jesus comes back again, he's there seeking to undo the work of the gospel. To bring chaos rather than order. To divide churches, to bring disorder and division and disunity. To cause people to run after other so-called gods who promise them so much but don't deliver. And just as the Lord smashed the Egyptian gods, so at the cross, he smashes Satan. This display of power in Exodus was a kind of dress rehearsal for what would happen at the cross years later. As Paul puts it in Colossians, Jesus disarms the powers and authorities, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So the Lord is victorious, he is mighty, he is powerful, and yet he's not unchallenged. Secondly, the Lord is visible, but he is not worshipped by all. So the plagues, the ten plagues, are revelatory. That is, they teach us about who God is. They are communicating with us. They are making God known to us. You want to know who I am? Well, just watch and see what I will do. And I think we get that. One of the things I'm not looking forward to as a parent is bringing home, or them bringing home, kind of boyfriends and girlfriends. And I've got these sort of plans already that I'm thinking through. What can we do to test these young men and young women? How are we going to make this hopefully timid individual kind of squirm a bit? You'll go through the sort of spaghetti bolognese test. 
you give them a white shirt to wear, and you see how they get on. And when the jury is out on someone, and we're watching to see what they're like, then how they act and how they react shows us a lot about who they are. What do their actions tell us about who they are? What do their reactions tell us about their character? How do they function in various situations? And if I can put it like that, you get this magnified millions of times as you see the plagues. God is acting and showing us who he is. He's showing us what he's like. So you get it from the start. In chapter 5, Moses and Aaron... They head off to Pharaoh, their knees are knocking, and they say to him, let us go so we can worship the Lord in the deserts. And Pharaoh's response, who? Who are you talking about? Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. And again, and again, and again, and again, in the seven chapters, we see the Lord telling us why he is doing these things. He's revealing himself, 7 verse 5. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. 8 verse 10, that Pharaoh might know there is no one like the Lord their God. 9 verse 16, that the Lord's name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And even in 10 verse 2, it's going to be part of the Sunday school syllabus. That you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them. And that you may know that I am the Lord. He is the Lord. And through his plagues, he makes his name known, himself known, his character known to to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, to his people, to Israel, and to the world, and to future generations. He is revealing who he is. I'm struck by just how small a, a myopic view of God I can have at times how short-sighted I can be and how the little stresses and worries in my life overshadow this powerful, awesome God. His name is known. The psalmist picks up on it in Psalm 105. He says, Give praise to the Lord, proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done, sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of all his wonderful acts, Remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he pronounced. Israel entered Egypt. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them, his wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. He turned their waters into blood, causing their fish to die, the land teem with frogs. He spoke and there came swarms of flies and gnats and rain into hail. He struck down their vines and fig trees. And he finishes, praise the Lord. This is the kind of God we can know. He has revealed himself to the world. And this Lord who utterly crushes Egypt, the extraordinary superpower of the time, is our Lord this morning. He's the God whom we serve. He is powerful and he is awesome. And when we're terrified and overwhelmed by whatever it is in your diary, that situation that just you just don't want to happen, or the uncertainty of the future, or our boss. And remember that you're on his side, the Lord. Look at his power. 
Look at what he does in history. And yet it's striking because he's revealed himself, but not everyone worships him. I remember in years gone by people saying, what you need is a miracle. Even that should be how we do evangelism. We need to ask the Lord to bring miracles. Because that will convince people, won't it? And yet we've seen it already. The Pharisees didn't deny the miracles. They just said, where are you getting the power from? Pharaoh sees these miracles and he's not convinced. His heart isn't turned. Just because people see God so clearly at work doesn't mean they'll trust him. It's actually the opposite happens here. At the end of the day, Pharaoh is further from God. He is hardened. He is hard. He is more anti-God as a result. And this is the controversial bit. Pharaoh's hardening his heart. The Lord hardening his heart. This is the bit we don't like. So I want to say three things. Firstly, Pharaoh became what he already was. He was a cruel and a murdering tyrant. He hated God. And I think you can follow it through Exodus and you see a progression in Pharaoh's heart. Let me read uh, the various verses and see if you spot the progression. Exodus 7, verse 13. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard. Exodus 7, verse 22. Pharaoh's heart became hard. Exodus 8, verse 15. Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses. Exodus 8, verse 19. Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen. Exodus 8, verse 32. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Exodus 9, verse 12. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 9, verse 34. Pharaoh and his officials hardened their hearts. 10, verse 1. The Lord hardened his heart. 10, verse 20. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. 10, verse 27. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And 11, verse 10. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. I think at the beginning, we read that it is Pharaoh hardening his heart and Pharaoh's heart is hard. And then by the end... The Lord is hardening his heart. The Lord is hardening his heart. To use the language of Paul in Romans 1 and apply it to Pharaoh. For although Pharaoh knew God, he neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But his thinking became futile and his foolish heart was darkened. Therefore God gave him over in the sinful desires of his heart. God judges Pharaoh by giving him what he wants. That's the first thing to say. The second thing is to say that Pharaoh is still accountable for his sin. The Bible is full of evil decisions that people use, people make, and the Lord uses them in his plans and purposes. Somehow he kind of weaves them in and isn't affected by them. We can't say he is evil. And so, for example, we see Cyrus, the Persian king, the Lord raises him up and he uses him to discipline his people, the Israelites. And yet Cyrus is still accountable for his sin. You see it most magnificently in the cross and in Peter, Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. Peter says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. 
Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Was it God's plan? Yes. Were there wicked men involved who were accountable for their sins? Yes. So Pharaoh, who has a purpose in God's plans, is still accountable for the wrong that he does. And we say, that doesn't sound fair. That doesn't sound very nice. How can God do that? Third point. And this is the one that is most hard for us to stomach. The Lord is not obliged to save anybody. That's the bit we don't like very much. It flies in the face of any kind of political correctness at the moment, but it's what the Bible teaches. Paul, later in Romans in chapter 9, says, It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. That's the hard truth. We all deserve punishment. We long for justice. And we look into our own hearts and realise what that justice would really mean. None of us deserve God's mercy. We all deserve his punishment. It's a gift that we have to be made right with him. It's not a right that we have. It's a gift. And the wonderful truth is there are many in this room who have received that mercy and that grace. And yet it is a gift. We don't deserve it. Mercy and grace from the Lord who is victorious and yet not unchallenged. From the Lord who is visible and yet not worshipped by everybody.